You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Eric Felton writes the Postmodern Times column for the Wall Street Journal. For four years, he wrote the journal's How's Your Drink column, which won a James Beard Foundation Award. His new book is Loyalty, the Vexing Virtue. Thank you for speaking with me, Eric. Rick, how are you doing? Great. You know, one of the things that interested me is that even as this uh, virtue of loyalty was first identified as a character trait, even then, it was always it has always been seen as obsolete in belonging to an age that is passing away from us. Yeah, it's funny. You go back thousands of years, and you'll find Greek and Latin aphorists who who talk about loyalty. Ah, you know, if only we had the loyalty they had in the old days. And then you go five hundred years ago, and you'll find people complaining. Ah, if only we had the loyalty they had in the old days. And then we have that same sense today. You know, if only. We had the kind of personal loyalty. People had the kind of loyalty that, that held together friendships and family and, and love. Um, if only we could have that loyalty that's been lost. And uh, I think that longing, even though it is at every time people feel that longing, um, it, it gives some sense of how important loyalty is in our lives, that people always feel that we don't have enough of it. And, and one thing that you point out, too, you're, you're talking about... Uh, one of the English kings who's being chased around the countryside, and he has a group of men. And, and what you point out that it only takes one person to undo the loyalty of many, and that's a really interesting uh, examination of the power of loyalty by looking at its inverse. It is, and um, you know, it is one of the reasons that we all have such a a horror of of traitors and of being betrayed is that we know how vulnerable we are to it, and so. It's one of the things that is so powerful about loyalty. When everybody sticks together, um, we're capable of doing amazing things. And yet, um, certainly when it comes to you know, keeping secrets of national uh, security of one sort or another, it only, it only takes one traitor to uh, undo the loyalty of 50 or 100 or 1,000 people. And, and you know, too, when you were saying, uh, talking about uh, people's ability to be loyal, uh, one of the things, that the problems with loyalty, and you have this great quote, is, man has always been prepared to die for good, bad, or harebrained causes. And I think that's, that's also an interesting observation, is that loyalty is not always, uh, um, it's dependent upon what you're loyal to. Absolutely, and and this is one of the one of the several reasons that loyalty is what I call a vexing virtue. It's a it's a problematic virtue, and mm-hmm. and it loyalty is so important and essential to every relationship we have that matters in life, and yet it's prone to abuse. It's prone to being used by people who are trying to hold together criminal conspiracies. It's uh, you know the if you look at the the Nazis. Uh, Hitler's SS troops, their motto was, loyalty is my honor, except for them, what loyalty meant, loyalty to the Fuhrer, it meant that um, you were willing to do things that other people found to be immoral, and that's how you proved your loyalty to the Fuhrer, and so if that's what loyalty is, then it's a, a vice, not a virtue, and 
we have to try to figure out how do you deal with loyalty so that we avoid the vices and the terrible vice that is possible from loyalty and stick to the virtue part of it. And you observe that uh, no less a, a genius than George Orwell made his statement about loyalty in Animal Farm, where where the the character that we admire the most, uh, Boxer the horse, is is he's tremendously loyal, but he's not too smart. You know, yeah, we we wonder about um, whether loyalty is smart, and we don't really see it as smart necessarily. Um, but we, we really admire it nonetheless. And, and in a way, loyalty isn't smart because part of what the virtue is about is that um, when, say, your friend gets into trouble and needs your help, well, you come to your friend's help, you come to his aid, not because you have a very careful, self-interested calculation about whether this is the, the, going to be a good thing or a bad thing for you personally, but you do it out of an immediate emotional response that that's what you do for a friend. And so in a way, it's, it's not particularly rational. It's, it's an emotional response. And sometimes we see that uh, an emotional, non-rational response, we can see that as being kind of stupid, dumb, if you will. On the other hand, there's tremendous power in having an emotional response that allows you to commit yourself, to make a commitment that, that people can trust you'll follow through on, and that's really empowering. Now, I'd like you to talk just about uh, creating this book because it's a really fascinating examination uh, of a very you know, specific character trait. How did you go about researching and organizing this book? Is this, was this just uh, setting pen to paper and, and plowing from beginning to end, or did you uh, circle around these, these various uh, periods and, and uh, perspectives on loyalty? Well, you know, one of the interesting things is the more I dug into loyalty, the more I realized that it is an underpinning of, of the relationships that matter most to us. And so I realized that what kind of family life do you have if, if not a loyal family life? If you can't trust your, the people in your family, what kind of love do we have if we can't trust, if we can't rely on those we love? And friendship. Where is friendship if we don't have loyal friends? And so Again and again, in each of these kinds of relationships, um, loyalty matters. And so I, I dug into each of these different kinds of relationships and saw how loyalty over time has um, been seen to be essential for every one of them. And it's really fascinating how, um, how the same observations have been made from the Bible, the ancient Greeks, Roman aphorists, and, uh, and poets, all the way through to modern times, and that, that it is one of these perennial human dilemmas, how to deal with loyalty that's really central to the human condition. And so it is dealt with time and again, and people take some similar strategies over time for dealing with the problems of loyalty, and over time people will take different strategies and it was really fascinating in working on the book and doing research on it to see the similarities and the different strategies that people have taken over the eons trying to deal with loyalty. You know one of the things that's 
uh, struck me as you were talking about friendship and family and country and the different kinds of loyalty is that loyalty as a virtue, in a sense, is almost a, a meta-virtue in that it, exp- that it requires us to rank our fidelity to other virtues and say, well, the virtue of family is more important than the virtue of friendship, which is maybe more important than the virtue to country unless we're about to be invaded, and, and that, that it really is in many ways one of the ultimate expressions of human morality. Yeah, and I think, I think in a number of ways, and the, the, the issue that you bring out is this terrible tendency that loyalty has to fall into conflict. And, mm-hmm. and this, is, this is one of the, the moral landmines that I think you know, bedevils us all the time and has for, for, uh, for millennia has troubled people, which is if you all of a sudden find yourself caught between the loyalty you have to your family and the loyalty you have to country or the loyalty you have from, for one friend and the loyalty you have for, for another friend. And often we're finding ourselves in these conflicts where the legitimate loyalties we have to multiple people or institutions or things end up at odds with, with one another. And there's no easy answer often in these cases, and, and people really have to struggle to, to puzzle it out. Um, and then in another way, what you say about loyalty being kind of a meta-virtue is, is absolutely right in that, that loyalty touches on every other virtue in the sense that your commitment, your ability to, to be trustworthy and to follow through on a commitment you have to any other kind of principle um, and, and virtue is under, underpinned by loyalty and this ability to, to, to be good to your word. And I think that that's uh, an essential way that loyalty ends up not only motivating what we see as strictly loyal behavior, but really motivating ethical behavior in general, this ability to have a commitment to a principle and, uh, and live up to it. One of the things you talk about, too, is, is the power of loyalty, how loyalty can sustain us in situations where otherwise we might have no hope. In war, you talk about loyalty in war and also in mountain climbers, and you have contrast two very different stories of a K2 ascent. Uh, talk about how loyalty can become literally a, a lifeline. Well, you know, the, there's the famous book by John Krakauer about um, this disastrous attempt um, to climb Everest. And, um, into thin eight air. People, uh, into thin air. And eight people died on the mountain uh, that day. And he writes in the book that he realized the night before they made their ascent that he had no connection to the other people who were making this ascent. And indeed, all the other people who were part of this, this climb... They weren't a team. They weren't connected to one another. Rather, they were all sort of climbing tourists, each of whom had paid some sixty or seventy thousand dollars to be led up to the ascent. But they they weren't connected to, to one another in any bond of of friendship or loyalty. And as a sort of manifestation of that, they weren't bound to each other by ropes either. Um, everybody was kind of out for themselves. And so when the crisis came and the weather turned bad and things started falling apart, it was every man or woman for himself, and, um, and those are disastrous situations. Some, some 50 years before, however, 
there had been a, uh, one of the, the first American attempts on K2 there in the Himalayas, and um, it's famous among mountain climbers because this was a real team, this group of men. They were ascending the mountain. They were within striking di- distance of the summit, and one of the climbers um, came down with um, a, a, a blood clot in his leg that threatened his life. Nowadays, climbers often, if somebody gets sick on the climb, well, they let him figure out how he's going to get down all by himself. Not then. This was a different ethic in climbing. The whole team turned around, and they devoted themselves to bringing this one climber down the mountain. Well, then a huge snowstorm hits at, while they're doing this, and five guys who are working their way down the most dangerous part of the mountain, um, one of them falls off the edge, slips, loses his grip, but he's tied to the next guy. The next guy gets yanked off the mountain. He falls. The two of them yank the next guy off the mountain. Before long, five guys have been whipped off the side of the mountain, and there's one man, Pete Schoening, who's up at the top, and he's got the rope tied to his axe, which is jammed behind a rock. He's taking care of the guy who's in the sled who is, is injured and, and uh, they're trying to get down the mountain. And as the rope whizzes out, and he can see that the rope's whizzing out, so even though he's in a snowstorm, he knows people are falling. He could have just let the axe take the fall, the weight of the men, and hope that it held. Instead, while there was just enough rope to do it, he gets under the rope, gets it over his shoulder, jams his, his feet up against the boulder, and he manages to hold the weight of all five men who are hanging off the edge of, of the mountain. And the men at the edge of the mountain, they, they all of a sudden find themselves, instead of dead, dangling. And he manages to hold the weight of them long enough for them to climb up and, and save themselves. And this is, this is really, a, I think, a tremendous illustration of what loyalty can and should be. It's, it's the way we tie ourselves to one another, and because we tie ourselves to one another, we're committed in a way that uh, makes it, one, that, that we save one another, um, but also that we can do more audacious things when we know we've got somebody to hold on to us. We can make a tr- an, an attempt on a mountain when we know that if we fall, there's somebody who's going to catch us. And one of the great problems in life is that often people that we think we have a loyal tie to, who we think we've got that rope holding on to us, we only find out that it's not the case when we're falling. And that's, I think, one reason why uh, betrayal is so bitter to people is that it's really when you need somebody that you find out whether they were loyal to begin with. You know, one of the uh, things you talk about is that uh, in America at, at some points, loyalty was seen as an antidote to individualism. And I think that's a really interesting uh, perception. You know, it is. Um, there, there was uh, uh, Samuel Huntington, the, um, the political theorist. He looked at, um, at West Point and the emphasis on, on man-to-man loyalty at West Point. And he saw that as something that we should emulate um, in the civilian realm as well. Um, and, and that it would be an antidote to individualism. Now, I rather like my individualism, but the great thing about loyalty is it's a way in which we, as individuals, commit ourselves to one another. So it is sort of an act of individual freedom, if you will, 
to choose who you're going to be committed to, who you're going to be loyal to. And so it's a way in which we maintain our individualism and yet build out of that individualism, build the kind of communities that we want, the kind of connections that we want with other people. So um, loyalty is, is both a great individual virtue, and yet it's an underpinning of of family, of community, of country, of these sort of larger uh, groupings of people that make life worthwhile. You know, one of the things that I really enjoyed about reading this book was that by focusing on one virtue, loyalty, as a reading experience, you uh, engage the reader in something we can follow very clearly and give us essentially a lifeline that takes us through a lot of really interesting uh, cultural perspectives and, and really enables us to step back and see our culture and see how we live and how we make our decisions and also look at ourselves how and loyalty informs our own actions. And I think that's a really interesting you know, reason and way to write a book to to engage the reader in this kind of uh, thought experiment uh, about something that's abstract, yet you make it very concrete. Well, it's I, I, one of the things that was really a revelation to me when I was working on the book was all of the different ways that that loyalty comes out in our lives. I mean, think of something really just as simple as as married couples keeping each other's secrets. You know, if you think of, of marriage, of, of love that lasts, um, it, it's, it's loyal love. And it's one of these things where uh, there, are, there are lots of people who write kiss-and-tell books these days. And you stand back and you say, how destructive of, of our relationships is that sort of thing? And you realize that something as simple as being able to trust your spouse, that they're not going to tell your secrets to all their pals, something that simple is so essential to a marriage being a success. And that's not the big question of, of marital infidelity, which of course is itself another kind of question of loyalty, but we see that, that this, this virtue of being trustworthy, of being reliable, turns up in all sorts of different ways and in very concrete ways in our lives. So if somebody tells you a secret, can you be trusted? to keep their secret. And if you can't, well, then that's a relationship, whether it's a relationship of love or of friendship, that isn't going to last very long. And um, I, I think that the more we look carefully at where loyalty comes into play in relationships, we realize that without loyalty, those relationships fall apart. You also, and we've spoken a little bit about this, but I thought this is one of the most fascinating parts of the book for me, was you, you talk about loyalties at loggerheads, how many loyalties conflict and how we have to rank them. You have close friends, country, friendship. And one of the things I think that's really interesting is that this is something we've been thinking about and writing about for a long time. You point out how the Greeks used their Greek myths and these tales of gods and monsters to kind of externalize all the wildly conflicting loyalties that people could have and bring them out and tell them in really entertaining stories. Yeah, it was an interesting part of sort of Greek religion that there's this notion that you could, if you have to do what the gods tell you to do, but there are 
hundreds of different gods or dozens of gods. Well, if those gods have different things they're telling you to do, you can get stuck in this jam that, well, this god tells me to do this, that god tells me to do that, and I can't do both of them. You know, sort of modern moral systems we've tried really ever since Plato, but through Immanuel Kant and, and other sort of modern moral systems trying to arrive at consistent morality, where if X is the right thing to do, not doing X is the wrong thing to do. And so that if, if X and Y are inconsistent, that you can't be in a position where you have to do Y if you, ha- if you have to do X. And, um, but our experience of life is a little messier than the convenient <laughs> modern morality. I mean, how many people have known friends who were married, who get divorced, and who find that they have to choose which of the old friends they're going to, st- to, to um, uh, be true to, or really in the similar st- circumstance, but a much more um, tragic one, when you have the children of parents who divorce, and, and sometimes in those situations, the children find themselves in uh, this feeling that one way or the other, that they are going to be betraying one of their parents, they, that they can't um, sort out the competing loyalties they have there. And we run into the same problem, um, whether it's loyalties that we have to family versus loyalties to friends, or we could have a loyalty to a friend that might end up being inconsistent with loyalty we have to country. Um, one of the examples that I think is, is really um, a compelling example of, of how problematic this can be is, remember, from some years ago, um, David Kaczynski, he's, he's reading the New York Times one day, and there's the Unabomber Manifesto. And he recognizes as he's reading the Unabomber Manifesto that, wait a second, I, I recognize these particular kind of ravings. Oh, no, this is my brother. My brother Ted Kaczynski wrote this, and he had this terrible realization that, um, that it was his brother who had been sending all of these package bombs that had been killing and maiming people, and who was promising to continue doing the same thing. And he had to make a decision. Was he going to be loyal to his brother and not turn him in, or was he going to be loyal to the larger community of people who were at risk of being killed or maimed by the Unabomber? And he, at the end of the day, he decided he had to do what he recognized to be the right thing to do, which was call the FBI and turn in his brother. And yet what's interesting about it and what shows that, that he really took the moral dilemma seriously is when he first called the FBI, he did so anonymously. And I think that there was a sort of, a sort of sense that in a way it was shameful to turn in his own brother, even though he knew it's what he had to do. That's such an interesting observation. Well, you know, what's interesting about it is I think it shows that when we're faced with these terrible conflicts, we have to be careful not to think that once we've arrived at what the right thing to do is, that the conflict somehow goes away. And that there can be times when we're stuck in a conflict of loyalties where really we have to go one way rather than the other. But we have to realize that, that even though it was perhaps the right thing to do, that the person who we didn't go with, uh, it, who, whose loyalty we did not honor, um, that person's going to feel betrayed. And often 
the conflicts of loyalty we have are conflicts that are conflicts between legitimate loyalties. It's not that one loyal, one loyal obligation we had was a real one and a true one and a good one, and the other loyal obligation was a bad one. It's often that conflicting loyalties can be ones that are legitimate ones. I mean, think of the, new, the newlywed couple and, uh, and the husband who's something of a mama's boy, and his wife and his mother um, are kind of at odds with one another. Well, he has a loyal obligation to his wife, and he has uh, a sense of loyalty to his parents, to his mother, and how's he going to sort that out? Um, if the marriage is going to survive, he's probably going to have to sort it out one way rather than the other. But it doesn't mean that the loyalty that he's had to his family um, and to his mother is somehow an illegitimate loyalty. You know, you, you talk about uh, one of the things I, I found interesting is you kind of give us a brief, uh, a brief history of love. <laughs> and it's not, it's not a history that I think most of us would expect. Well, you know, there, there's been this sense going back for thousands of years of trying to figure out what love counts. Do we want, do we want love that is this, this burst of passion, or do we want love that lasts the long, long haul? And love that lasts the long haul isn't, isn't necessarily full of this sort of, you know, just riveting passion at every moment. In fact, if you have kind of riveting passion that we get when we first fall in love every day for the rest of your life. You'd never get anything else done in life. It would, it would be something of a disaster. Um, and so we don't know whether we want love to be something that, um, that binds us together or whether love should be this thing that in its passionate intensity breaks apart every, every tether, every bond of life and, and, and throws us wildly into passion. And... Uh, I fall on the, the school of loyal love, and, uh, and I think that over time people have, uh, for example, in the medieval courts of, uh, of France, which sort of informed our, our notions of what love is about. They used to have this debate, do you want love to be a flower or a leaf? And there would be poetic contests in which people would pen these, uh, these odes to love, and they would talk about whether they would sort of have a poetic debate over whether love should be a flower, which is bright and, and rich and full, but of course fades away very quickly, or whether love should be a leaf, which is to sort of think of, a, of, of an evergreen leaf, a, a laurel leaf, which is something that it's not extravagant, but in all the winds and blasts of, um, of fortune and, and, and wintertime, when times are bad, that leaf holds on and it doesn't wither away. And that's loyal love. And, I, and what's fascinating in, in looking at these romantic debates that were had in, in the poetic tradition of medieval France is that, um, that though there was at first a great uh, love of the, of the passionate side, that people finally came around to seeing that the love that matters is, is, is loyal love. And interesting is we've been having these same debates uh, in, in, in our own time, where we have people like uh, uh, the psychotherapist and author Esther Perel, who's, who's got a book called Mating in Captivity, in which she talks about how, wow, you know, sort of married life when you have kids, all the passion drains out of your relationship, and oh, we need to, we need to get that passion back in, even if it breaks apart the relationship. And um, 
so that it's really the same debate going on now, and I, I think that, um, that loyalty still wins out in that debate and that uh, the, the love that matters is the love that goes the distance. And even our artists are still debating it too. Cole Porter, you mentioned marble is is love marble or clay. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And the rest of that ly- lyric is is it a is it a new Rolls Royce or just a used Chevrolet? So. <laughs> I think we're going with the Chevrolet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you talk about uh, something that that I think is really interesting: loyalty as an accomplice to to misdeeds. The, the kind of loyalty as as essentially an anti-virtue. And and you mentioned we mentioned a little bit earlier about how the Nazis, you know, uh, esteemed loyalty to the Führer overall, and that meant you were ready to. To, uh, commit the the most heinous acts in in to uh, present that loyalty, and, but we also see that you know in in our own country with the 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 loyalty oaths and so talk about uh, you know the history of of political loyalty. Well, the you know with political loyalties we can look and we can certainly see how loyalty has been abused over the years and and really loyalty's gotten a bad name. Um, because of those abuses, uh, we think of McCarthyism and this notion that you want people to, to you're using loyalty to, um, to stamp out dissent, to try to enforce some kind of rigid ideological um, notion and, to, and use loyalty as a, as a partisan weapon, if you will. And of course, the, the problem with loyalty oaths is if you're trying to um, root out traitors and spies, and you think you're going to do it by making people take an oath to be loyal, well, a, a good spy <laughs> is going to be the first guy in line to sign on the, on the bottom line, and he's going to say, absolutely, I'm, I'm loyal as the day is long. So one of the problems with loyalty oaths is just that it's bad, you know, it's bad technically in the face of good spycraft. Mm. Um, but what is interesting as well is that loyalty oaths were not new to America when... Um, they were used in the Cold War. In fact, they were used widely in the Civil War. Um, Lincoln was, was big on loyalty oaths, and, and in fact, as the North moved through the South and took over territory, they would require people to sign loyalty oaths to the North um, in order to be able to get food and water and other provisions um, in captured territory. And this was the same thing that had been done um, during the Revolutionary War. George Washington... Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, they were all in favor of loyalty oaths. And in those cases, it wasn't so much um, because they expected that somebody who, um, who raised their hand and took an oath was going to necessarily abide by it, but it was an effort to make people declare what side they were on and uh, to try to sort of discourage the, uh, the loyalists of, as the people who were, were remaining true to the crown were, um, to to discourage them by showing that all the rest of their neighbors were standing up and taking an oath that they were loyal to the United States. You know, I thought it was really interesting. You mentioned that Lloyd Hervey points out, and I think that um, this is such an interesting notion that ultimately a king, a ruler, must be loyal to what keeps him in power. It's really tricky loyalties with leadership. And it's tricky because there are two directions that the loyalties can go, which is 
a leader needs to have loyal followers to be much of a leader, and yet those followers expect the leader to be loyal to them as well. And you'll find often that if a leader is too worried about um, uh, standing up for his followers, it can lead him into very bad policy decisions that can, one, weaken his rule, but also can weaken the country. And this is, again, one of those classic clashes of loyalty. You have a loyalty to the, the people you work with or who are your followers, and you have the loyalty as a leader that you've got to have to the country as a whole. In, in modern times, we can think of, um, of George W. Bush, who was, who was big on, on loyalty, and it actually helped strengthen his administration in a lot of ways, but it also could lead to some weaknesses in his administration. Think back to Katrina, and Bush goes down to, to um, Louisiana, and there he is. He's, he's putting his, hand, his, his arm around Michael Brown, the FEMA director, who is failing in his effort to respond to this crisis. But Bush is trying to support him. He's being loyal to the guy who works for him. He says, heck of a job, Brownie. And that loyal support is really sort of, I think, the turning point when the wheels came off the Bush administration, and yet it was a gesture of loyalty. So uh, it is one of these things where leaders have to, as all of us have to do, sort of make their decisions about who and what you're going to be loyal to when, and they can be very momentous decisions. You know, less momentous uh, decisions, but no less powerful, are what you t- when you start talking about bonding and branding and brand loyalty. And, and essentially, I guess, I, well, I just said those were less momentous decisions. Brand loyalty is a tremendous economic power. It is, and you can see why businesses would, would like us all to be loyal to business and to a product, because when do we see that, that loyalty exists? Well, loyalty exists when you're willing to, to suffer in some way for the thing or the person you're loyal to. And so in a business context, well, maybe that might mean that you're willing to stick with a product even if the product gets lousy and cheap. Well, um, that you could see how that would be in the business's interest. And I think those kinds of loyalties are often taken advantage of. Um, I had the experience that uh, got me thinking about this in, in some ways about the, the business side of, of loyalties, where I had a credit card that I had had for, for years, and I hadn't made any changes to it, and paid my credit card bills on time. I should have been the kind of um, customer that they would have wanted to keep, and, um, and yet I was paying a fairly high interest rate. If you've been with a company for a long time, you are, and, and I got offers from other companies, and I finally went to my credit card company and said, you know, I'd like you to match this offer that I'm being given by this other company. And the fellow I got on the phone said, you know, I can't, I can't offer you that rate, but if you call up again and get the cancellation department on the phone and say that you're going to cancel your card, well, then those people in the cancellation office, they can give you that great rate. And so what you see is that the people who are being rewarded by the company were the disloyal customers, the people who called up to say, I'm quitting. And, um, and so even though businesses talk a good game about loyalty, I think that in the end, loyalty is one of these things that's more uh, taken advantage of and abused in business circumstances than, um, than honored. You know, um, 
one of the things that that I found really interesting are are you have some you know dilemmas in this book, and there are two. One that you found yourself put in, which is a, a very f- famous experiment, the prisoner's dilemma, and this gets to what we were talking about earlier: the rational solution versus the human solution, the emotional solution. So, uh, bring us back to your experience of the prisoner's dilemma. Well, I was taking a class in um, what's called game theory at Harvard. Uh, a couple of decades ago, and I was studying with a guy named Tom Schelling, um, who is one of the great fathers of game theory and uh, since won a Nobel Prize. Brilliant, brilliant guy. And he introduced us to what is called the prisoner's dilemma, which is kind of the most famous uh, game theory game. And, and the way this game works is that imagine there are two conspirators, and they've both been captured by the, the police, by the authorities, and in best interrogation fashion, they've been separated, taken to separate rooms. And each one of them is told that um, if the other guy rats you out, um, you'll go to jail for a long time. But if you rat him out, you won't go to jail for very long. Um, and yet, uh, if both of them keep their mouths shut, they'll both get out. And the way the game is set up, though, each one of the players it's in their, in their combined interest for both of them to keep their mouths shut. But in their, each of their individual interests, as they look at it, each of them will end up in jail for less time if they betray the other guy. So if what the other guy does is to keep his mouth shut, if I betray him, I get out scot-free and he goes to jail for a long time. But if he betrays me, I better betray him too because otherwise I take the whole rap myself and he goes scot-free. But if we both take the rap, it's still a lesser time. Because So either way, I'm, my interest individually is to rat out the other guy. But that always ends up meaning that the two conspirators always rat each other out and they both go to jail instead of if they had both kept their mouths shut. And what's interesting is as this was explained to us, we're asked, what's the right thing to do uh, if you're one of the conspirators? And most of the people in the class didn't get that what the conspirators are supposed to do is rat each other out. And even though that's the rational, strictly speaking, way to play the game, um, we have these residual notions that there's something wrong about betraying your fellow conspirator, um, that you don't want to be a snitch. And there are these sort of emotional things that come and affect how we play the game and uh, even all of the Harvard students in this sort of game theory class about rational decision-making were affected by that. And we, we see that in real life, people are affected by it all the time. Police have to go to great lengths to try to break down the loyalties that even hardened criminals have to other hardened criminals. And interestingly, when game theorists have got together over the years to try to figure out, uh, they, would, they would have these competitions to see who could have the most successful score in repeated games of the prisoner dilemma, and they would form these uh, computer programs to, to, uh, to play the game. And interestingly, the strategy that was most successful in playing the game was not this strictly rational strategy, but rather one where the first gesture you make in the repeated games of the prisoner's dilemma is always the loyal gesture, not betraying, not snitching. And I think that's some measure of how powerful it can be 
to have this emotional response, this ability to commit yourself to somebody else and know that you're going to do what you said you were going to do, even if down the line there may be a, uh, a rational calculation to be made that it's better in my interest to, uh, to rat you out now. You know, this gets me to the, to the notion, uh, brings to me the notion of uh, what Karen Armstrong talks about, um, the importance of compassion. And loyalty is, in a sense, just a form of compassion, it seems. It is. I mean, it's, it's, I, I think it's hard to have compassion without loyalty. And again, it's, it's the way in which the virtues all touch on, on loyalty. And, and as you said before, the, the way in which loyalty is this sort of meta-virtue, which is it informs all of the, the other virtues because it, it underpins our ability to, to follow through on our commitments. And whatever you think the right thing to do, whatever the virtue, the specific virtue, whether it's uh, generosity or, 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 or other specific virtues, um, if you can't follow through on on your commitment to that virtue, the virtue isn't worth much. And loyalty is the virtue of being reliable, of being trustworthy, of being able to follow through on your commitments. You talk about the lifeboat ethic and <clears throat> our various versions of the Titanic sinking, and then bring us to a man named Albert Hubbard. Albert Hubbard. I love Albert Hubbard. He's this fascinating character. He was uh, sort of larger-than-life character at the, the turn of the last century. He, um, he had been a, a soap advertising salesman <laughs> at one point, but he became a kind of public intellectual who um, had he published a couple of different magazines, and he uh, had a, a press that published lots of very successful books. And he was one of the best-selling authors of the late 19th century and early 20th century, and, um, and full of stories of, of uplift of, of one sort or another. And he is the fellow who really seized on a true story from the sinking of the Titanic. And the true story that he seized on and, and helped really popularize, and it captured the, the imagination of, of Americans when he told this story, was the story of, of Ida and Isidore Strauss on the Titanic. Now, if you've seen the movie version of uh, the old movie version of the Titanic, which is uh, A Night to Remember, this scene plays out in the movie. You have a, uh, an, an old married couple, and the wife is going to get in the boats, but the husband will not get in the lifeboat because there are still other women and children to get in the boats. And uh, this is a true story. The man who wouldn't get in the boat there was Isidore Strauss, who was co-owner of Macy's Department Store. But his wife refuses to get in the boat because she's been with him for how many decades and has shared everything with him. She's committed to him, loyal to him. She's not going to get in the boat without him. And she says, you know, where you go, that's where I go. And the other women who are in the boat were were really dumbstruck by this, this display of loyalty. And um, it was reported in newspapers, but ultimately was given its greatest, uh, uh, its, its greatest telling by Albert Hubbard, who wrote in one of his magazines he published, wrote a long essay about the example that Isidore and Ida Strauss um, set, and that their tremendous ability to, to be loyal to one another 
set an example for their children and for the rest of us about what loyalty really entails. And it was, it was such a compelling telling of the story. But, you know, you might think, well, that's, that's just so much bunkum. That's, that's kind of hokey. It's, uh, it's, it's this hokey telling of the story. And, and maybe it would have been. But what's tragic and fascinating was that Albert Hubbard himself later had the, the chance to make the same decision, which is he and his wife were traveling then just three years after he had written this essay. They were traveling on a boat for Liverpool, but their boat, the Lusitania, never got to Liverpool. It was right at the, the beginning of World War One. The and, very famous uh, sinking. And the, the, uh, uh, a U-boat um, torpedoed the Lusitania. And as the boat keeled over, people were trying to get to the lifeboats. And Albert Hubbard, the last person to see him alive, saw that Albert was there with his wife. And the two of them, they got arm in arm. And instead of fighting to get on the lifeboats, they turned around and they walked back into their cabin, not wanting to be separated in, in the water. And it's this incredible sort of tragic vision of loyalty. And yet, I think we can be inspired by that nonetheless. And, and I, I find a lot of this book really inspiring, in, in not just in the sense of seeing the virtues of, of positive act, action, but just it's interesting to to read a meditation on you know a, a, a truly um, philosophical book that really gets to the core of something. And I think one of the things that makes this uh, as a work of philosophy so interesting is your you know unswerving vision on just focusing on loyalty. And I think that's a really interesting approach to get to all the other stuff you get to in the course of talking about loyalty. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, and it's uh, as a... Um uh, as a recovering philosopher, if you will, I never did get my Ph.D. in it and became a newspaper columnist instead. Um, I've, I've often sort of tread this, this uh, uh, line between trying to do philosophy but trying to write as a journalist about the, the, the nuts and bolts of everyday life. And one of the things that I've tried to do with the book is that it's very easy in philosophy to get lost in um, sort of arcane details of arguments over very narrow technical points and to sort of lose sight of what philosophy ought to be about, which is the, the, big, the big questions of, of, of life and the big questions of what it is to be human and the human dilemma. And what was a challenge that, that was really fulfilling in writing the book was to try to to take on this question in a way that not only was interesting as, as philosophical conundrums to be untangled, but that I hope have something to say about how we live our lives and that, that in a way it's a philosophical self-help book, if you will, because these are dilemmas that we all face and that uh, with any luck, figuring out how to untangle these dilemmas will help us live Fuller lives. I've been speaking with Eric Felton. He writes the Postmodern Times column for the Wall Street Journal. His new book is Loyalty, the Vexing Virtue. Thank you for joining me, Eric. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it, Rick.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.